You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 27th of March 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, India shoots down one of its own satellites. Actually an extraordinary technological accomplishment, rather than an extremely bad day at the office for someone in the Corps of Army Air Defence. My guests, Daniela Pelled and Robert Fox, will be discussing this and today's other top stories, including US President Donald Trump's placing of his tiny thumb on the scales of Israeli democracy, France's decision to banish one Iranian airline from its skies, and 50 years ago, one small step for man became one giant leap for mankind. But now's come the time for us to make the next giant leap and return American astronauts to the moon, establish a permanent base there, and develop the technologies to take American astronauts to Mars and beyond. Regrettably, Mike Pence does not appear to be volunteering to go first. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Robert Fox, Defence Editor at the Evening Standard, and Daniela Pellet, Managing Editor at the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. Welcome both. And we start with India, the Prime Minister of which Narendra Modi has been boasting that the country has succeeded in shooting down a satellite in low Earth orbit. This is, almost disappointingly, not quite the act of malicious vandalism, it sounds, but a demonstration of formidable technological capability. Only three other nations, the United States, Russia and China, have succeeded in cleaning up an orbiting projectile with a ground-launched missile, which is to say hitting a swiftly moving target from 300 kilometres away. Um, Robert, as exactly that, as a demonstration of uh, defensive capability, how impressive is this? Well, it's pretty impressive, but one wonders, given the order of battle, that is all the kit and capability that uh, India has, and which is not as good as it should be in many many areas, and worryingly so, why on earth they want to uh, concentrate on this? Um, The space dimension, the militarization of space, is is a big problem. But uh, one wonders, in view of the shortcomings that were shown in uh, India's uh, military and particularly air combat capability in the recent clash in Kashmir, why they're focusing on that. Could it be that there is a very big election underway. Robert, that is a a shockingly cynical Mm. analysis, but it it, it does cue up more or less exactly my next question, question, Daniela, which is, has Narendra Modi calculated that this is the kind of great big spiffing stunt which will impress voters on the eve of such? Uh, is yes too short an answer? <laughs> if, well, you, if you could, if you could elaborate on that somewhere. I shall. I shall expand. I shall expand. So much so that even I believe the election commission in India is is looking into whether this is this counts as a, a sort of a form of illegal campaigning because he used an address to announce something to, to warn that he was going to make a massive announcement. Made this announcement. I mean, this positions him very much in the the current you know the vogue of of strong men showing their showing off their weapons. Um, it might work, though, because people are susceptible to this. And the the usefulness of being able to shoot down a satellite, I mean, it's quite forward thinking, but the, the usefulness you know, in the short term is uh, is fairly minimal. It's just a really, really impressive thing to be able to do. 
in terms of uh, in terms of technology. Uh, Robert, you mentioned the the concerns about the militarization of space. Uh, Pakistan, unsurprisingly, have been notably undelighted by this accomplishment of India's. Uh, their statement was: "Space is the common heritage of mankind, and every nation has the responsibility to avoid actions which can lead to the militarization of this arena." Uh, does Pakistan have a point? Short answer, yes. Um, no, it, it is a <laughs> We can huge, get through this show in 90 seconds. It is a huge area of debate. That, 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 that was cruel. Um, because they do have a point, because it's been a long discussion. That is it possible, and it probably isn't possible, to put space under the same kind of regime that you have with the Great Antarctica Treaty of 1958, which expressly stated that it should be demilitarized, and there has been a bit of argy-bargy, sorry, pardon the pun, but people like the Argentines <laughs> and the Chileans have been putting military folk there, but so it happens, and denuclearized. And even when um, the Americans wanted to put in a nuclear, civil nuclear reactor, there was a lot of tutting and a lot of saying, uh, thus fur further you do not go. And so they've stopped doing that. But sorry, Park Antarctica, which is the great model, it just doesn't seem to be possible with space because taking what Daniela was saying, the next phase is shooting communication systems. And the communication systems, even like your GPS, are so important to missile technology now. And this is where you're getting an offensive-defensive arms race, and it is already on in space, particularly between the Russians, Chinese, uh, and, and the Americans. And the Americans started in on this actually relatively early in, in, in realizing that satellites and space were going military pretty rapidly. And Daniela, embracing regular listeners for the, the sounding of the soft power klaxon, which is a, a, a subject on which we are keen, but is Modi also anticipating or working on the assumption that India's space program plays very well internationally in projecting the image of India he wants to project? Uh, famously, when India uh, put a satellite into Martian orbit, which is obviously also an incredible technological accomplishment, uh, I think it was Modi who was very quick to note that they'd spent less money doing that than a Hollywood studio did on making the film Gravity. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I think you're right. There's still enormous cachet in uh, in anything space-related. I mean, the idea of the Star Wars is terribly 1980s, but the idea of reviving this, uh, it hasn't gone away. I mean, look at the amount of uh, effort and money that the Israelis just uh, invested in their own uh, nascent state space program, which for them is as much a soft power win as hosting the Eurovision uh, in May. So, yeah, it does say... It does. Uh, it sends a signal about the kind of futuristic, forward-looking nation um, that India is supposed to be. And because it wasn't done in an aggressive context, you know, they can say he can say, "Well, this is this is about progress. This is about skills. This is about deterrence." It's also about competition with China, and they want to say, "What you can do, we'll we'll we'll, we'll try and match you." They can't, of course, and I think they are really worried they must be as uh, somebody who is vying for space as a major regional power which indeed they are with china so dominant now in cyber as well as space that india has got to keep going that it it, it, it is very very worried about that and there have been questions
questions about the military budget and the size of their forces, which are enormous, but they're nothing like as enormous as the capability of the People's Liberation Army, the Navy, this uh, almost uh, extraordinary exponential growth uh, of military and particularly maritime power for, uh, uh, from, from China. So um, what India is doing rather intelligently, although this is, is a surprise, is picking headline-grabbing projects that say, yeah, we are up to it. We do have the technology and science science to do it. But quite, as you say, from the initial experimental period, which this must be judged to be, to actually making it effective, I think it's a pretty open question. Okay, well, let's move seamlessly along on the subject of demagogic nationalists making broad statements in anticipation of looming elections and take a look at Israel. The country votes on April 9th, and if incumbent Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu who does end up losing it will not be due to the best efforts of US President Donald Trump, who earlier this week signed a proclamation recognising Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, which Israel seized from Syria in the Six-Day War of 1967 and annexed in 1981, though no other country has previously recognised the legality of this. Um, Daniela, is this actually a subject that is likely to swing votes in Israel? Because surely for most Israelis, uh, and I'm guessing probably most Israelis born since um, Israel took the Golan Heights. It's just it's just seen as a fact of life, isn't it? No, absolutely, and people do not see the Golan Heights as occupied in the same way as people acknowledge that the West Bank and some Israelis acknowledge that Gaza is occupied too. And certainly, the settle, settlements that you have there and the the, the infrastructure there is a very, it's, it's, it's very very different. But the, I think the impact that this has on Israelis, it's like the recognition of Jerusalem as the country's capital. Uh, it speaks to this idea of that the outside world is, you know, great, important actors are recognising what they think is self-evident. Uh, you know, it spans across uh, across all political allegiances from the far right to the to the left and, and the moderate centre. The idea that, yes, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel and the idea that the Golan Heights should not be... Uh, ever, ever given up to Syria. Uh, I think the um, the leader of the Merits Party said recently that it still should be on the table and there was almost universal disdain that anyone could be so apparently naive. They look at what's happened in Syria and they see the Golan Heights as being a strategic, strategically essential for for Israel. So I don't think it's not enough on its own to, to swing him the election and Netanyahu is getting increasingly desperate because things are not looking so good for him. But it's still... I mean, it's still a, a pretty large win for him. Um, Robert, leaving aside those considerations that Daniela has just uh, delineated there and, and looking at the Golan with your defence editor's hat on, is it actually still strategically important to Israel's security in the way that you can probably see that it felt like it was in 1967 when it was... I mean, it is geographically this thing that hangs over the north of Israel, but I Israel is a stronger country, you could argue, than it was in 1967, surrounded by weaker adversaries, couldn't you? Well, in fact, I looked at the Golan on physically twice last year and it's breathtaking once you get up there it truly is strategic ground because you overlook you're up in the panhandle you overlook right down to damascus and then you go over the other side of the golan heights and it's like a finger and it holds it you see how close everything is uh, across the lebanon border because that is really Hezbollah Bolistan. And they're very, very worried about tunnelling and so forth. It is absolutely a strategic crow's nest. It's, it's a lookout. And that's why I'm not at all surprised for practical 
tactical reasons as well as strategic, they're going to hang on to it. It is quite sparsely populated. It isn't particularly Arab either, as you know, in the crucial areas right up on the, on the border. There are the four Druze villages which, which straddle uh, either side. And taking very much Daniela's point that I've been reading the reaction, and Haaretz, of course, being from its particular position, but very generously said, well, it's just a shoulder sh shrug. And you get on the one hand, yes, this, this, this is stating the obvious. It is strategic ground for, for Israel. But what worries is what might come out um, if Netanyahu really pushes it with regard to annexation or accumulation of further lands to protect settlements on the West Bank itself. Because this is the trope from his ally of the new right. And once you start that, then you get into a whole different, a whole different ball game. And the most critical uh, commentary has international commentary has been coming from its, Israel's most formally a usual ally, namely the New York Times, and that they've, they've, they've done a whole string of editorial and informed pieces, whether you agree with it or, or not. Is this the route to absorbing to, to absorbing the West Bank? Because that will bring in up to two million uh, Palestinians. How are you going to disenfranchise them in favour? And, and so it changes the whole confessional nature uh, 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 of the Jewish state. Why I also fear very quickly, why I think things might be out of control, I do think Gaza, although we've had just this spat which seems to be under control now um, with uh, um, Hamas in Gaza, I just have such bad feelings and a lot of people in the settlements, in the kibbutzim, even round uh, the, the, the hinterland of Gaza, it looks at demographically, um, physically, it's about to explode at any minute because conditions really are dreadful there. Uh, Daniela, that point Robert raises, and it has been suggested that this, is, this would be the nightmare scenario following a recognition of sovereignty over the Golan by the United States, that it might encourage certainly a future Netanyahu government towards uh, absorption or even annexation of the West Bank. Is that something that it's likely that Netanyahu would want to pursue? Is there any way for any Israeli government that that would not just be buying enormous amounts of trouble for no really appreciable gain that I can think of. It's an idea that's been circulated um, for, for a while. And, and as, as with all these uh, these plans, eventually it becomes mainstream. The idea that Israel can, can annex certain parts of the West Bank, which, they, which has the most amount of, of settlers, mm. and unilaterally, both Israel and America are quite fond of unilateralism, declare it to be Israeli territory. I don't think people are very worried about disenfranchising the the Palestinians. The Israelis are, are interested in, in in tactics more than strategy. Uh, they're very good at improvising. They're very good at seeing what happens now and worrying about what happens later uh, in a while. I mean, the occupation has been going on for so many decades. What seemed untenable and unsustainable even twenty years ago is now just de facto state of life there. So I think it's I think it's almost inevitable that such a thing will happen eventually. Just to go back quickly, Daniela, to, to where we came in, and you, you were mentioning the that it now seems like a faintly heretical idea if someone ever suggests that the Golden Heights are still on the table because it has been so long, and within Israel it's generally understood that the Golan is just part of Israel. Is there any imaginable prize or concession for which Israel would trade them back to Syria? 
Well, look, 10 years ago, a deal was almost on the table and a deal was, uh, as, as, as a very senior Israeli figure uh, once told some journalists, uh, a deal over the West Bank is like going to the market where you have to bargain. But a deal over the Golan, everyone knows what's on the table, it's like going to the supermarket. They came pretty close. So there would have been a demilitarized zone, security guarantees, perhaps even leasing back the wineries and, and other farms uh, for a period of years. The situation that has really changed that is the Syrian war mm. and the argument that stability cannot be guaranteed by, by Israel's neighbours. So we would need to see a very, very different situation in Syria for that to be back on the table. I think, sorry, from the, well, very quickly, there, are, the, there is a positive and a negative. The negative is the tooling up of, 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 of Hezbollah, which really is quite dramatic. Their missile capability, they can use precision weapons, and that's why they're watching so closely um, that border. The positive, if you put it like this, is absolutely no chance, chance that an Assad Syria will even raise a finger to retake the Golan Heights. So you know that it, it, it is permanently in bulk and nobody's going to do anything about it. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Daniela Pellet and Robert Fox. Coming up next, one Iranian airline has its wings clipped. Get ready for a fresh new look. We've moved our printing from the UK to Germany. You'll notice the pictures are crisper and the print is sharper. In this fashion-forward issue, we meet the president of Taiwan as she gears up for the 2020 election and hop on a Finnish icebreaker. We take stock of the business of retail in our annual survey, fly around the world to meet the documentary filmmakers of the moment and review the last column, reminding us of the importance of a free press. We cross bridges and sit down with Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, visit a Spanish town famous for its sugary treats and bring you the latest fashion news from around the world in our style directory. Plus, an interview with Lueve's creative director, Jonathan Anderson. Further along, we show you what not to miss in Madrid, check in on the latest hotel openings, and delve deep into everything Texas has to offer. It's a whirlwind tour around the world, printed in Germany. Monocle's April issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Daniela Pellet and Robert Fox. And let's look now at the travails of the Iranian airline Mahan Air, which finds itself contemplating an abruptly truncated schedule following the decision by France to ban Mahan from its airspace. This follows a similar decision by Germany in January and for similar reasons that Mahan's aircraft have also been used to transport Iranian troops and material to Syria and elsewhere in the Middle East. Mahan Air, established in 1992, was Iran's first private air. Airline. Iran's state-owned flag carrier, Iran Air, is not as yet subject to any similar ban and is still flying to Paris, Frankfurt and indeed London. Um, Daniela, Mahan was blacklisted by the US for broadly similar reasons back in 2011. Why has it taken everyone else until now? Because this seems like a reasonable reason to ban an airline, doesn't it? Well, it does, but people were uh, interested in supporting the uh, the international treaty with Iran over its nuclear um, capability as well, which is somewhat unravelling now with the withdrawal of the Americans. I mean, if if it it would have made sense to do this uh, uh, a while ago, it certainly would have made sense to do this in light of Iran's activities in in Syria and the Revolutionary Guard's involvement. But the um, pragmatism doesn't always uh, result in what is right 
But now uh, air travel as well in Iran has really been affected by the ongoing sanctions, everything from from fuel to replacements and I, uh, parts replacements. And I wouldn't I wonder whether there's an element of safety here as well, that it's actually questions have been asked about how safe it is for the, the airline to fly. Although Iran Air, as stated, as far as I know so far, as yet have not been subject to any similar ban, which is, which is how I was able to once fly with Iran Air on assignment for this magazine from, from London to Tehran and then to Caracas. It's a strange trip. Um, <laughs> Robert, if there was no particular urgency as France and Germany saw it, and there clearly wasn't if it's taken them until now to get around to doing this, is, is a signal being sent here from Europe to Tehran? And if so, what is it? slightly disagree. I think there is a practical aspect to that. And funny enough, I'll come to that second. Okay. But I want to take Daniela's point, which is dead right, that there is great concern about the JCPOA. That is the agreement, mm. the, 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 the nuclear agreement, absolutely falling, up, falling apart. Because intelligence and information is coming our way. Not only we know that the missile program has gone on, but there is more of a nuclear capability kept in being than was generally thought. A lot of it is hidden. Some of it is very, very difficult um, uh, to get at. And, you know, let's call a spade a spade with Mahan. It's, it's, it, 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 it's the Revolutionary Guard Corps airline. It's part of See, the that, that would have been a catchier poster. But yeah, but 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 but, 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 but this it, it's it's part of a combinat, and as Daniela was, was saying, it's used for ferrying around troops, arms, and material to forces, particularly in Syria, where they are the vital linchpin particularly as Russia has indicated that it's going to do not only Donald Trump, but the Russia is talking about a military pullback um, from Syria. And that's the practical end of it, because Iran is crucial to holding Assad in being because they have cloned uh, Hezbollah, which is Lebanese, and produced Iraqi Syrian versions of this, which back the Syrian army. And the Syrian army, I would guess, would not be capable, have anything like the capability that it now has, somewhat revived, unless it had this militia, which is enormous. According to some Israeli intelligence assessments, it's about 80,000 strong, which is pretty darn strong. I do detect there's a bit of bolting the stable door after the horse has run. In in, 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 in in this case. But it does uh, show the general misgiving around the region about uh, Iran. Um, you hear it from Israel. John Bolton, of course, is very keen that something should be done. But in the commentary, the, 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 particularly the very secular Israeli commentary, they don't think this can be dealt with now by surgical strike or just one one go at Iran's military capability, which may or may not, we've had this with Iraq, have a genuine nuclear capability now. It's a long haul, I think, as um, Eisenkot, the outgoing uh, chief of the uh, Israeli Defense Forces, warned, warned the press the other day. Uh, just finally and quickly on this, Daniela, do, do you think there are indications that just perhaps, even though people want the agreement to succeed, there are indications of the European nations uh, slightly coming around to America's way of thinking where Iran is concerned? I, d I think it's a bit more complicated, though, really, because the the, the deal had was always flawed and had its issues. But the fact is, it was the best thing that I believe it was the best deal that could have been got at the time. And perhaps a deal is, is better than nothing. And uh, I think it will also 
change we see the next incumbent in the White House as well because with a different leadership perhaps there will be more flexibility. Okay, well, finally tonight, US Vice President Mike Pence, who would have been by some distance the weirdest member of literally any other US administration in history, has announced plans for Americans to be back on the moon within five years. There will be many who would be willing to agree with this if we're allowed to decide which Americans. The Veep made the remarks in an early reminder of how the next few months leading up to the 50th anniversary of mankind's giant leap are likely to be sufficient to render the astonishing achievement of space travel both boring and annoying. Um, Robert, there's going to be yards of, obviously, Apollo 11 nostalgia between now and July this year, 50 years, etc., etc., etc. How enthused, enthralled, etc., would you be by seeing men, or indeed women, walking on the moon again? Two-word answer. It doesn't answer your question. Thunderbirds, go! (laughs) This was the rhetoric of Pence, wasn't it? It is absolutely bonkers, kiddies TV nonsense, because it's not even clear that the serious space establishment, if they want to get into manned flight, which they don't, they want to use remote machines to go deeper and deeper, and certainly that's the way the Europeans who have have know-how, if not the, the capability, are going. And didn't you, in that announcement, he's adopted the inflections of Trump in in his speech. The I've sp- never heard Mike Pence say anything with any inflections in it at all. But the space, the the, the rhetoric. It's absolutely against... He said, we want to do it within five years. Ho-hum, yes, the anniversary. I wonder who they hope might still be in power in five, five years' time, whereas the space establishment, such that it is, said 2028 at the earliest. Um, Daniela, w- w- would you care one way or the other uh, if, 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 if human beings were once again to disturb the dust of tranquility base with their big, clumpy spacesuit feet? Well, I... I quite like the idea. I think it's quite good for for humanity in general to to try these epic and. But no. we've th- we've done this one. Oh, we can do it again. We can go <laughs> further. We can do more fu- fun stuff. The problem is the reasons why this is happening, which is all about. Wouldn't re-election. it have been amazing if Pence had said we can go further? We can do more fun stuff. <laughs> I think it would have been more honest. I mean, I'm quite surprised that he that he believes in in, in space at all, considering I don't think he believes in uh, evolution. So that in itself he was believes a surprise. In the final rapture. Well, did that, will that come from the moon? I, I don't know. No, I think it's. I think it's lovely for for humankind to have these really, really ambitious projects, and de- it's part of the development of, of technology. I mean, we can have, we have nonstick frying pans now as a result of the uh, the first moon mission. I mean, who who knew? Who would have thought of it? However, uh, as as Donald Trump's legacy. This would really, really annoy me. Well, on the subject of Trump's legacy, Robert, uh, Vice President Pence also mentioned uh, the establishment of what I think they're now repointing as US Space Command, but which I am going to carry on referring to as Space Force because it's funnier. Um, is, is, is that ever actually going to happen? This is clearly this is clearly something Donald Trump envisages as his legacy, and I'm absolutely willing to bet money, as I've said before, that he will personally attempt to design the uniforms. Yeah, but, but, but Space Force, really. <laughs> Is, is it going to happen? But the trouble is that Trump really should have been a Brit because this was done beautifully by a man in Eagle magazine who had a, <laughs> a leader of the Space Force called called Dan Dare, pilot of the future, and they designed all these uniforms. It is pure retro fantasy that they're I'm going in for. willing but, to bet money that's where Trump got the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's something like that. It would be from, from a comic, an old-fashioned comic, a fumetto, you know, this, this thing. Um, 
actually, if you talk, they're going to take it out of the Air Force and the US Air Force and the US Navy. And they said, God, this is so expensive to just build another structure. But it is the fantasy legacy. You know, there's something he can tweet about. He, he, he's, he's going to want to personally host, isn't he, a reality program in which the crew were chosen? Yes. There, there is absolutely no way on earth that's not going to happen. That, but they that can't a bit find of a the spacesuits spin for the women. This is the thing. <laughs> um, uh, Daniela, uh, Pence, Pence also said, uh, and it's always fun quoting Mike Pence, because I'm pretty sure he writes his speeches himself, because who else could or indeed would. He said, it's not just competition against our adversaries. We're also racing against our worst enemy, complacency. Do you have the least idea what any of that even means? Uh, no. That's my shortest answer for the evening. <laughs> um, uh, Robert, on the grounds that basically we have another 45 seconds to fill, uh, do you have any idea what Vice President Pence is getting at there when he describes our worst enemy as complacency? Being 73 and white male and sort of somewhat middle class, complacency is my bedtime companion. <laughs> um, Daniela, are, are you basically on, on board with Space Force, however? Well, it, you know what it is. I shouldn't be. I know. I know it's awful, but it is kind of romantic and it is kind of exciting. And oh, I clearly am not immune. Just so to this your kind son can do it. Your six-year-old son. That's can fly true. To the moon. No, exactly. It, it, it does. It does. Uh, it does inspire all these kind of dreams in anybody with an even slightly romantic nature. Which until now I didn't realise I had. <laughs> Well, on that giant leap, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Robert Fox and Daniel Lapellard, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rory Goodrick. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Do tell us how you listen to our news programmes, our listener survey at monocle.com forward slash M24 survey. Uh, there's more music next at 1900. It's The Entrepreneurs with Daniel. The Daily has more on the day's big stories at 2200. There will doubtless be lots on this evening's Brexit circus. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow 1800 london i'm andrew muller thank you for listening